Peace and love, everybody. I'm Isaiah, and you are now listening to an episode of Talking Musicology. Today, I have a really, really, really special guest. Um, This guest that I have with me, to me, is one of the greatest, one of the most brilliant, special, gifted musicians, artists that I ever heard. I can go back to my younger days of sitting you know, on my living room floor and always watching television and always watching these videos in rotation. And that year, there was a lot of artists that were, in my eyes, winning because I love watching them and it was until one day i seen this brother on this boat playing the guitar with all these badass musicians <laughs> playing along with him and ever since then i was just hooked and i've been following this brother for a while and supporting everything that he's been doing over the years and to me this brother is a hero for a very for a whole lot of reasons um and to this day he's still doing his thing with no machine behind him he's free he's happy and just out here killing people and today i am with mr van hunt Oh, I'll say it. Come on, man. That was a lot, bro. <laughs> Come on, man. I had to I had to speak my truth. <laughs> How you doing today? Oh, I'm great, bro. I really appreciate that, man. Those those are uh very kind words. Oh man, definitely, man. I mean I mean, listen, you've definitely been a part of my life soundtrack. Um and I just have to thank you for that, man. Just thank you for constantly keeping it going and just being you, you know. Thank you. Through all the adversity, through, all, through it all, man, you're still here and shining. Yeah. As you're supposed to be. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank man. One of the things I definitely want to thank you for, um, because I would say is is you're one of two people. You and... Andre 3000 are responsible for why today I'm a a Thelonious Monk fan. Um, (laughs) Because (laughs) I remember, you know, just reading, I'm always constantly reading you guys' interviews. And when I heard you guys bring up Thelonious, and I remember you saying that Live in San Francisco was your, one of your favorite albums of all time. And I, it, inspired me to re to look up that album i would say and i can see why <laughs> you yeah. you're a fan and you love that record and you know i know you probably grew up on Thelonious, so i want to you know get your thoughts and just how much he meant to you mm-hmm. well you know i, I it was uh Wynton marcellus who was desc- trying to describe monk's style uh somewhat theoretically 
and he was saying that he, he writes almost in perfect patterns um, of, of what you might call like a you know circular kind of pattern, whether it's chord chord progressions or you know the, the way you use your your leading tones or whatever, and come to to go around and come back to you know tonality in the in the in a in a, in, a, in, a, in the music through your modulations and progressions and. And I, I'm I'm sure that's how Winton meant it. But when I listen to Thelonious Monk, it, it gratifies me in a way uh, that you only get through something that is so comprehensive. It's almost like uh, immersing yourself into a you know a fantastic uh, ocean. You know that the, the water is perfect, uh, and you can you feel like you can do anything in the water. You know that. Is the kind of feeling I get from from listening to Thelonious, even when it's just him playing, he he covers so much ground, and I I, I think that that's what uh, uh, Winton means because Thelonious is the the songwriter for the jazz idiom, and uh, and, and it's and especially uh, for the most popular era of you know so called jazz, you know everybody was playing a monk tune, and right. because they're just they're, they're so comprehensive, you know. They cover they cover so much ground. Got you, got you. Also, another thing I wanted to to get into uh, because I felt like it was so important to talk about. Let's talk about these Instagram covers that you've okay. been doing for the last couple of months. And I mean, do you've been taking some of these joints and just adding? this beautiful flavor to it. And I'm just wondering what was the inspiration behind you doing that? You, you know, it's the same inspiration that is behind uh, every creative thought I've ever had, which is just necessity. Mm. You know, uh, we needed to promote, you know, these shows and, you know, me being me, I, I didn't, I didn't want to just sit in front of a camera and go, Hey guys, you know, <laughs> gonna be in Charlotte, you know, come see me. I'd rather uh, write about, you know, North Carolina and some of the artists who uh, were born and bred there, like Roberta Flack, Thelonious Monk. Put them together in a track, you know, in a a way in which, you know, uh, I can make some musical uh, sense of it all. Right. And so that's what it, that's what it became. It was really a need to have a, 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 a a promotion. And, I, and wanting to do it in a, in a meaningful way. Got you. Now, you know people are kind of anticipating for these joints to come out in its entirety, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I wrote, I wrote the songs, you know, for the length of Instagram, which is, you know, an interesting thing to do these days. Uh, yeah. Essentially writing minute-long songs. And so that's what they are, you know. It's not like I was recording it, uh, you know, four or five-minute long tunes obviously i can go back and do that but uh they are they are minute long tunes you know what i mean uh and uh they are kind of all right there on instagram i'll probably move them around over to uh you know uh, uh, uh other other sites other social sites just you know so people can, other people can have access access to them if they aren't uh, instagrammers so got you got you, got you. cool so now let's rewind to the beginning um what when was the moment that you you felt like you discovered you know music was 
your purpose, your calling? You know, what what was that moment? Well, you know, I think I know what you mean by the question, um, but the way you asked it, to be honest, that what I would describe as that moment really didn't happen until this year. Wow. Because I started touring again. And I said, you know, when I got back on stage, I, actually the minute I got back on stage and realized what it was I was doing when I interact with the audience, that's when I, I realized that this is where I belong. Wow. You know, wow. But I think, you know, if, if you mean when was when did I decide that music was going to you know be my career, then that was definitely 84 when I, when I heard When Doves Cry in the, in, on the radio. Okay. 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 So what what was inspiring you growing up? What was influencing you? Uh you mean in, in uh other musically. Than, yeah. You know um like I said, I mean Prince just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Because uh on all levels like he was uh visually, you know, he was arresting, you know, uh and then sonically you know, he was arresting. And that was my first glimpse into having to match your sound with your image uh, and seeing what uh, the system and the machine can do when at the core of it is, you know, very talented artists who have some some very good songs. And then that can how that can, the branding and marketing world can turn that into something very powerful. Got so, you. That you know that was just moving in so many ways, um, and I, you know it's funny because I'm 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 older now, almost fifty, and you know I'm introduced to new music all the time. You know every time it seems like almost every time I sit down, I meet somebody, we're talking, whatever, and they play me something, something I haven't heard, even something that's maybe old and I haven't heard, and um, and yet and still, the music I grew up on, uh, when you talk about Marvin Gaye. Uh, Al Green, Stevie Wonder, Prince, the Isaac Brothers, uh, the Ohio Players, and Parliament Funkadelic. Almost all music can be encapsulated within those artists. Okay. I listen to all this stuff, and it's like everything. I mean, yeah, there's some, you know, there's some, some moments out there that, you know, kind of ride outside of that world I just described. Maybe you talk about, the, you know, some of the, the London uh, punk bands or some of the Appalachian folk music or, you know, some of the hippie folk music. But still, man, like, you can still catch glimpses of all that music and what I just described. And you add in, you know, you, you can go back a little further. And add in, you know, certainly Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, and man, you just get, you just about got it all right there, bro. Wow, wow. <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah. seriously, like, it covers so black music covers so much ground, and you know, I don't, I don't say that to uh, pinpoint racism, but you have to look at what the conditions inspired the. Um, uh, were in, uh, how they inspired were inspired by the racism, by the circumstances, the hierarchy, the patriarchy, the white supremacy, all, all of that. Sh- it puts such pressure on the marginalized in America that that music just, you know, the expression, the need to express, created such a an explosive uh, form of creativity 
it just went all the way around the world. And of course, it's also in the way black Americans have been involved with sports and every other way that they had to express themselves, dance or whatever. That that downward pressure that was put on them, it just uh, made them spread out almost like a weather system. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and create this very potent uh, sound, look, movement uh, that is just undeniable. Hmm. Wow. So I want to ask, I mean, because I knew growing up, uh, you actually had the opportunity to, to be around Jimmy Williams from the Ohio players. Uh, how did that come about? How did that connection uh, come about so early in your life? Well, there, uh, his, his family's house, house he grew up in, uh, was uh, the, the backyard abutted the, the uh, corner of the backyard of my father's house. Mm-hmm. So they essentially grew up together. And uh, Jimmy and oh, some, some, most people call him Diamond, and my father, who is Van Hunt Sr. And so they, uh, yeah, they, they grew up together. And uh, my contact with Jimmy was just as a child. Like, he would see me, you know what I mean, <laughs> and just say hello. And he really talking to my father, right? Uh, but when I did my first interview, uh, I wanted it to be with the Ohio players. And they were like, uh, it was with Vibe magazine or something like that. And, they were, and so they asked the, uh, Jimmy and Sugarfoot, uh, if they would do the interview, and they were like, "Yeah, if he brings his dad." <laughs> so wow, uh, yeah, that was really the start of it. My relationship, my uh, my relationship with them was really through my father's relationship with them. Got you, got you. So when I, when did you start picking up instruments? Oh uh, man, right around seven, eight. I picked up the. Uh, this, I started playing drums because my p- cousin played drums. My older cousin, and he he was left-handed. He played open open-handed, uh, what they call open-handed, where you yeah if you're facing the drums, the hi hat you're playing it with your with your left hand. Okay. So you're playing a snare with your right, and um, that's so that's how I learned, even though I was I was right-handed. And then, uh, and then I, I simultaneously I started I started playing saxophone in school. Uh, okay, so. I want to know because what was your work ethic like at that time to really master uh, these instruments? Because some people say that you really don't master an instrument. You're constantly just learning and learning um, and you just get better. But I wonder what was your, your work ethic like, you know, picking up these instruments and perfecting your craft even then? Yeah, I would I would certainly say that there's a level of mastery that you know you reach, even even though you're still going to be learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, like uh, there's nothing anyone could ask, like somebody like Nicholas Payton to do with a trumpet that would be beyond his abilities. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even though he's still yeah. learning how to play, you know, what I mean? uh, you know, I would definitely say he's a master. Uh, even a master in learning, if you will, you know what I mean. Understand. Uh, and as far as my musicianship, you know, my mastery isn't really in any particular instrument, um, other than you know my brain. Like I feel like I'm a I'm a master of concepts, yeah. and 
um, you know, I can write, I can put together songs really, really quickly because they come to me like that, um, uh, almost complete. And so I don't really, I don't, yeah, somebody might hear me play and say, oh man, he's like a master. But it's really because the song is so clear to me that I, I you know, between my brain, the functionality of my thoughts and my brain and materializing it, it it's it's just a clear path. You know, I'm right. so, I can play very well what I hear. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Wow. So at this point, you you moved to to Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you get with this rock band uh called Royalty. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Um describe that experience. Um if you could take me there, take us there. Oh yeah, it was crazy. So I'm you know, I'm like fifteen. And it was really my first recording experience. It's uh, a very nice kid, nice family. They were called the uh, Hales, the Hale family. And uh, two brothers, a mom and pop. And, you know, they took me took me into their family, basically. And, uh, you know, I played with the oldest brother, Brian. And, you know, he would let me just sit in, get in on his songs. You know, I might add a bass line on the synthesizer or... You know, even with the bass guitar, which I was just learning. Or, you know, mess around on his drum machine, whatever. And so, you know, we and he had a band that he formed was called Royalty. He was really big in the Prince. And so uh that's how it started, man. It's me and uh uh you know, three white guys just kind of playing this kind of it, it, you know, I call it rock, but it was some something in between Van Halen and uh and uh the revolution. Wow. Okay. Well, so we, then we weren't okay. as good as either one of those. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, so then you moved to Atlanta. Yeah. You moved to Atlanta. You go to school. Um, but then at some point you drop out to pursue music. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious. I mean, how much faith? How much did you believe in what you was doing? in order to make a really big move like that mm-hmm. at that time to pursue uh, what you do now, which is music. Yeah, you know, it was always uh, clear to me that I would be known uh, as a, a member of the, the music community, you know. Yeah. I, knew I, I knew I would make some contribution because I knew I wasn't going to stop and I knew that I, I had you know, my finger on the pulse of something. But, like, my fears were the unknowns, like um, how an audience might react to my ideas, you know what I mean? And that was only based on how my family and uh, and close friends reacted to the sounds I was making, which, you know, what sometimes was positive, but wasn't always positive mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, like a constructive criticism or anything like that, so... You know, I was I was worried mostly about that, and if and if the fans or listeners might not get it, then maybe you know it's because people who are trying to promote or market the music might not get it. You know, so I had all those unknowns that I was dealing with. But in terms of knowing that I I was I would be a part, like a contributing member of the musical community, there was never any doubt. I I just needed to, you know, focus and and put in the work. Mm. So when when did you um, 
connect with with Dallas Austin and, and Randy Jackson. So uh, I met Dallas. There, the first place I worked in, there was a guy who let me run his studio, which was just a, a, a little eight-track uh, reel-to-reel, small mixing board. And I was, I was the engineer in the room. Now, I'm, you know, at this point, I have minimal engineering skills. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but I'm running demos. You know, I'm doing demos in and out of there. So people come in. It could be anybody, man, from an eight-year-old to an 80-year-old who wants to just make a, a demonstration tape, literally a tape uh, uh, for whatever it was, a beat, church music, whatever. So that's what I what I did. And uh, the other part of the, the studio ha- also had a, a rehearsal business where they had enough space where groups could come in, national acts, and uh, rehearse. And uh, one of those groups was TLC. Of course, uh, Dallas Austin had produced a lot of the TLC music. And so he would come through every now and then. And, uh, man, that was, you know, my first introduction to him. Wow. Wow. And then Randy, Randy Jackson as well. How did that? How did that connection come about? Well, from that studio, like one of the owners of the studio uh, was a woman named uh, Belinda, Belinda Reed, and her husband Victor Reed. Uh, they both owned the studio together, and Belinda started managing this little band that I was I was fooling around with, and she met uh, Dion Ferris, and Dion Ferris's manager. And so they were looking for a whole band to take on the road. And so she was like, I got a band and, you know, why don't you come check them out? So they, she brought them to our little rehearsal spot and they watched us play and they were like, we can't really use the band, but we really like the lead singer, which is me. So, uh, we, we, you know, at the time I think I was playing bass or something and they were like, we know he can play bass, but you know, can he play guitar and keyboards? I could play keyboards, but I hadn't really messed with Aaron or any guitar. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I, you know, quickly just tried to, you know, fig- fi- figured it out and learned like a couple of her songs. Went to the audition. She really liked the way I sang, uh, and she thought that she could make use of that and my keyboard skills. And so she took me out as the second guitarist, uh, keyboardist, and and a singer, man. And then through her. Through Dion, Rand, Randy was her A and R person at, at Columbia Records. Mm. So, okay. I, you know, I met I met him through through her, and then you know just started dishing out songs. You know, we were always exchanging songs we were working on within the band uh, for for Dion's touring band, and so I was always playing them something, and they would play me something, and it just got back to Randy. You know, and he wanted to hear some of my stuff, so I let him hear it. And that's how they found Hopeless. And, you know, we went from there. Word. So, speaking of hopeless, <laughs> uh-huh. how how did that come about? Because obviously, that's one of the biggest songs on the Love Jones soundtrack, and part of a great selection of music. You know, um, with Maxwell and other people on that on that album. Oh, uh, cool. um, how how I mean. How, how did that track come about? Well, um, like I said, I was giving Dion Ferris a bunch of music, 
uh, and did a lot of demos. And this is just one of those occasions where she's like, you know, Randy asked me if I want to do a song in this movie. Do you want to check out the movie and maybe we can come up with a song? So, yeah, I was like, yeah, of course. So I'll go over to her crib. We watched the movie. The, it was just, you know, early clips, uh, what they call dailies of the movie with, without any sound. And they were like, you know, this is this is where, the, you know, we need a song right here. And you know, so I, I went back to uh, the studio, came up with a nice little tune while I was watching these birds and squirrels fight each other. <laughs> and that was one of them. You know, that was one of the tunes I came up with. And I figured they would like it, but I wasn't sure. And I, I, I played it in a key that was comfortable for me. So it was really more of a song that you might expect to hear from. Donny Hathaway or, um, you know, and it was, it was different. Like the production was different. Like, um, it was more old school. Some you, you might, you know, expect to hear on a Donny Hathaway record. Um, and so, but you know, uh, I, I co-produced it with Randy and, you know, he wanted to kind of modernize it. And of course, you know, Dion is young at the time. She's a young singer and they want to have, you know, more of a modern sound. Right. So that's why the record sounds the way it does. But, you know, uh, it probably would have had a, uh, a, a rather different sound, you know, had I had my own druthers. <laughs> Got you. So at this time, I know you was recording your own demos, producing your own stuff. Yeah. Where I'm very curious to know, where were you uh, musically at that time? Uh, you know, around that time, I was making something. You know, I had already written, like, Who Will Love Me and Winner, which, you know, was one of the songs on my first record. Uh, yeah. Was, even as Hopeless came out, you know, I was just about to write, like, song like Character, which actually came out on my second record. Wow. Uh, so, you know, I was, I was there. You know, was tunes like that that were being being written. Always, you know, you know, people always thought that my tunes were kind of from, uh, mature for my age, you know. And uh, even now, you know, when I put together a demo, I, you know, eight out of the ten songs that I might play for, for you know, like managers or whatever, they're gonna be like, oh, okay, these eight, these eight are really, really deep. <laughs> but, but here's two that we can work with. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, this has always been the case uh, where. Uh, you know, because Randy would make jokes, you know, I'd play him something and he'd be like, okay, I got, you know, good news, bad news. And, you know, uh, the bad news is you still, what, what would he say? Um, no, he said, the good news is you're no longer 10 years ahead of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> he said, the bad news is you're still five. <laughs> wow. Wow. And, <laughs> and, that's, and that's something I wanted to, I'm going to wait till later to ask you more about. Um, because it's funny you say that as, as far as you being, I guess, always ahead of your time, man, because honestly, that's one thing I can say about your catalog. It, there's nothing about your music that sounds like five years ago, 10 years ago. Like a lot of everything that you do sounds like tomorrow. Oh, uh, it sounds like next week. Um, but like I said, I will come back to just that um, soon. Mm. But one thing I really am curious about, because I know this joint is on um, your second album, on The Jungle Floor. Mm -hmm. But um, Mean Sleep, 
which was originally done for for Cree Summer. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always been curious about how, you know, that came about and YouTube's connection and just working with her. Yeah. And did you say you, you said the two of the our our connection? Yes. Yeah. Well, man, you know what? I met I met Cree through Randy. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because the label she was on was also under Columbia Records. Mm. And so um she was looking for some some writing collaborations, and so Randy suggested me to her uh artist and repertoire person. And so she came out to Atlanta, uh, met with me, and man, all those songs that we did on her record, we did in like a weekend, you know. Wow. Wow. Uh, but of course, I, you know, I wasn't in a position to produce the records. Uh, she already had a producer. Uh, yeah. But when, when they went back, and this has always been the case with my tunes, you know, people would take them and they'll try and just reproduce them. Um, and it, it's always something that, you know, is uh, a little weird, a little off kilter that they, they can't quite reproduce. And so then you'll have this kind of issue where the artist and the record label are both asking the producer who's been asked to, you know, do something that's really unfair, which is kind of reproduce a, a really singular kind of weird little sound. Right. Uh, and then it's like, just try, just try and do what Van said, you know, Van did it or... You know, of course, it's never a question of me coming in and working with the producer. Like, it never reaches those kinds of conversations, which has always been weird and kind of unfortunate. Um, because, man, you know, the, the thing that I do is not difficult at all, but it's what I do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like if you like what I do, you're going to need me to do it. Um, yeah. And I would probably say that about most you know, real like individuals, and you you know you'll know those people when you when you hear them. It's like uh, like your man D'Angelo. I mean, he has a very singular approach to the keyboard. Yeah, and I it's you know I can't even imagine I couldn't even name you a keyboardist who I feel like could mimic what he does. So you're not gonna get that. You know, you can. I mean, you've heard it. You. I mean, how many people copy D'Angelo? Oh man, not the, many. <laughs> you know, I mean, but I mean, even the essence of a sound. A lot of people are trying. You know, what I mean, they they'll get they'll get the roads, they'll get the the beat, the kind of delayed kind of you know action. But it's never ever really him. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you have to have him there to do that, even though it it seems very simple, and it is for him. Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, of course, with that coming out in 1999, I mean, I could say 99 was a pretty great year for you because um, not only you worked on that, but you, you worked on Love and Stereo um, yeah. with, with uh, Rasan Patterson. Yeah. And just take me through that time and um, the, the songwriting process for those sessions uh, when it came to that album. Oh man, it's one of the most remarkable periods of my career because Rasan was completely supportive uh, of my creative endeavors. You know, what I mean, anything I wanted to try, he was he was wide open to it. Uh, 
And so that's, that's really what we did. It was, it was a, just a kind of proving ground for me. Uh, I learned a lot. Those are really formative years. I was able to u- utilize the studio like an instrument. Gotcha. Uh, and I just learned so much with him. Both he and uh, Dion Ferris, they really taught me about layering uh, vocals uh, and adding and looking at the vocal as a as a texture, an orchestral texture for the uh, the the, uh, the uh, musical arrangement as a whole. Yeah. So one thing I definitely wanted to get into because it blew my mind to know that you was on this track. And I noticed a lot of people don't really, uh, it's kind of like a really deep cut mm-hmm. in our catalog. And you just happen to be on the bass and the keys. Um, mm-hmm. And that's Joy is Missing You. Okay. And dude, I got to say one of my favorite elements and it's always been that way, even before I even knew you was playing on it, is the bass. Because it's just <laughs> something about that bass line is just ridiculous. So I was just like, how did that even come about? You know, would you enjoy uh, connecting and you singing background vocals uh, on that track, man? Like, you know, just how did that connection come about and you doing your thing on it? Well, Joy's always been... Man, she is uh, kind of the, uh, and I, I don't want to say this to kind of uh, sound uh, or diminish her role in any way, but she was kind of the mother of the, the uh, Atlanta scene when I was when I was coming up. You know, if uh, Joy was to the Atlanta scene what um, what Malia Franklin was to the New Jersey scene with Parliament Funkadella, like. Everybody who was added to Parliament Funkadella came through Malia. Like she would find you. She if she turned you on to George Clinton, then you know George Clinton was more likely to kind of add you to the group. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and Joy was a bit like that. So she knew about me. She wanted to work with me. And you know, if Joy wanted to work with you, then it didn't matter who was against it. <laughs> she if she wanted to work with you. You were going to be there working. So. She always liked what I did. She was always supportive. And that's really how it came about. So I found myself in, in Dallas Austin studio working with her and uh, uh, my man, um, uh, Pat Brown from Organized Noise. Oh, Sleepy Brown. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're all in the studio just, just working. And so, you know, Pat and, and Dallas, like their musical contribution is 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 conceptual uh it's rhythmic it's a lot of things but they don't really like you know go heavy on the instruments so i, w- I became kind of the instrumental person there uh and so i you know I, I was playing the not instrumental but i was instrument guy you know in the room so i'm playing bass and and keys and, and uh the, you know they were really working on the beat and, and the concepts joy and, and dallas were really working on the concepts of the record and how the, the lyric was going to come together and then, uh, and along with Pat or Sleepy, and so, and they, and Sleepy was also working on, you know, kind of the vocal shapes w- along with Joy. So it was really, and in in the in in the in that era, that's how a lot of the sessions went. Like people would be working on very different things in different parts of the studio, uh, in which I miss that 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 aspect now because there's you know so much 
jamming that goes on in the studio now or or somebody's just by themselves. But there's, you know, my introduction to the studio, you you mentioned Rasan. The first time Rasan and I went to the studio, we were in the studio, the same studio where Timbaland was working. Wow. And he had three studios running. Uh, one part of the studio, he's just in there tracking. And then he would have another part where somebody was in there just working on uh, lyrics and melody. And another part of the studio, somebody's just working on, like, beats. Um, and that's how it all was, was coming together. You know, this real kind of crazy, uh, 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 all these moving parts. You know, we're coming together. And that's how, you know, P-Funk used to do it. Wow. Yeah. And when you have that kind of, you know, juice, man, like, it, you know, it's, 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 there's going to be something explosive that comes that comes out of it. I only wish that with the Joy session that we could have done more of those kinds of tunes where we all working on it, but working on different aspects of the tune. Yeah. 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 I, I really wish that you know you two could do some more more stuff in the future and hopefully that does come about because oh we will man we will yeah because the magic that you you guys created man and even just the the flavor that you added like <laughs> words can't even describe how that that those elements that you added just make me feel man so um thank you bro yeah man so at this point you know, we reach in 2001, 2002. Um, and I, it's funny because we, we touched on this a little bit last night. Because um, I believe, man, you you made um, your, I think I would say your first appearance at, at the jazz, funk jazz um, cafe festival, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. And talk about that experience because there was something that you you said in that documentary where you talked about the respect that you got and it was something that you you described that was rare um that you never really came across um until you you performed at that festival um uh, speak about that experience for those that that may have not may not even know about the festival yeah. or or even may have not known that you played there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. speak, speak on that. Well, Funk Jazz uh, Cafe is a long-running uh, festival in Atlanta, going on a quarter of a century now, where uh, Jason Orr, the founder, would basically just have this place where a lot of musicians... Uh, artists and, and fans of, of those artists could just come together. And, it, it, you know, you'd have painters and uh, dancers, all kinds of folks up in there. So, but he always invited like an unknown guest. So it might be one year, it might be Omar from, from England, or it might be Raphael Sadiq, or it might be Bilal. Uh, and he had a house band that played behind those artists when they came in. So, a couple of times he asked me to be, as a local musician, he would ask me to be a part of the house band. And if I could, if I was available, you know, I would do it. And so I got to play behind, play keyboards behind Omar one, one uh, weekend. And then I played behind Raphael Sadiq one weekend. And uh, I think I played with Joy once. 
so it was, you know, just a blast. Uh, this this guy, a lot of people don't know, uh, unheralded kind of musician named Foley, who's a drummer and bassist. Uh, played with all kinds of folks from Miles Davis to, to Parlor and Funkadelic. He was there, and I played with him. So it was, you know, it was just a stone, stone cold vibe. Yeah, yeah, and I'm so glad that we were able to touch on that because I, I really want people to know you being as badass as you are. <laughs> you were at one point on a stage with other badass cats as well, like Omar and Raphael. Um, when he came in with the mm-hmm. with the Lucy Pearl thing, mm-hmm. and you just doing your thing, man, and um, being up there with them, yeah, and and you, you know, I don't I don't know if people had a clue yet, <laughs> um, but when I see stuff like that, man, that kind of lets me know, like, man, you you definitely are on the right track, you know, being <laughs> on the same stage, same space with those legends yeah. you know um which leads to what we're about to talk about now is 15 years mm-hmm. of an incredible masterpiece your debut album yeah, um and i've i know you've been creating the material um for this album mm-hmm. uh for a while um as you mentioned earlier and I, I was just curious because what what was your approach to what is of course your debut album, but this album that's gonna be on a major label um, machine. So I just I'm just curious what was your approach like even back then mm-hmm. um, as you were uh, working on this album. <laughs> Well, it, it, my my approach has always been overly ambitious, um, long on uh, you know dreams and concepts, and short on actual detail. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I go in the studio and I and I fully expect to come out with uh, you know something as 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 valued. Uh, as any big record you can name, whether it's Prince, Beatles, Beach Boys, whatever, you know what I mean? Right. It's some huge concept record. I fully expect that that's going to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> then you get in there and you know you, you work in, and even while I'm working, it's like, oh man, this is going to be the biggest, biggest, craziest record. And then wow. of course, you know, and then of course, you know, it comes out and it is what it is. Like, um, but it's you get in there and it's hard to harness all of those places. And thing that uh, where a song can go, harness all that talent, um, and in that way, you know, I've I've had so much fun with making these records, but that's you know always the way I go into them is like all kinds of these huge ideas, not necessarily uh, concepts for an album, you know, kind of the way Questlove and, and uh, D'Angelo have where they have these these concepts for what their the end result will be. I've never really had that. I work from the inside out, but I, you know my expectations for the record are huge, always huge. Gotcha. So, from what I understand as well, you sort of dealt with, I guess, some politics, even mm-hmm. with the first record. Yeah. Um, one thing I remember you saying 
um, about down here in hell. Down here in hell was actually one of those joints that contained a lot of heavy guitars um, yeah. in it. Um, just like Seconds of Pleasure, if I'm not mistaken, was actually originally a punk song. Yeah. Uh, how... I guess I, I guess the question I do want to ask is, of course, how did you deal with those politics? How did it make you feel? And you know, how important was it to you to um, stay true to the art? Well, uh, the, the staying true to the art was of always supreme importance. And even when I switched uh, Seconds of Pleasure from what was a punk sounding tune to just this like slow kind of Curtis, Curtis Mayfield uh, Marvin Gaye tune it was you know out of respect to the song I just thought it flowed better with the way that we were playing it and I was playing it with uh, uh, the Whitehead brothers at, the, at that time and it was really them who pushed the song to that slower direction because they were huge uh, Marvin Gaye uh, quartet gospel uh, fans so their thing was was wasn't always the really really up tempo kind of aggressive approach. In fact, it was kind of a slower, more brooding kind of sound. So they essentially pushed that song to be slower, and I didn't mind that. I felt like that was that was following the path of the of the tune of the of the truth of the tune, you know. But you know, but with seconds uh, down here in hell with you, I had to really fight for that because. It was being the the song was being arrested. Its tracks were being arrested by what well, was essentially you know white guys who thought they knew what was best for this song. Um, and re what really they were saying was that the, the people who I thought would react to the spot the song uh, would react even more with even more fervor if they did. It. And the people I was referring to were people I'd grown up with. You know, people who introduced me to the Isaac Brothers. Right. Um, I knew that I knew those people. They were definitely what anybody would call my people. And here these white guys were, they, 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 were, they were not a part of this community and they were telling me what was going to work for that community better, you know, they, that they knew what was going to work for that community better than I did. Uh, so I had to really, uh, you know, fight. And in the end, I, I got the song the way I wanted it. It probably would have been a little more aggressive on the guitars, you know, but we, you know, we settled on this kind of uh, place where at least I got the, the beat the way I wanted it, if if not the heaviness of the guitars, which, you know, was to come later on in my career. Gotcha. Speaking of that, that song, um, speak on the concept of just that joint and down here in hell, like, what what does that mean to you? Oh, um, it means uh, I don't want to say uh, I'm going to say I'm going to say resigning yourself to the the true nature of your relationship. But it, I don't mean it to sound like you're just giving in or surrendering to something that is less than what it should be. What I mean is. You're accepting your relationship for what it is. And uh, it's almost like a person who is really afraid to get in the water because it's cold. Mm -hmm. 
and then they work their way into the water and then they don't want to get out <laughs> because yeah. it's warm and they never want to go through getting in cold water again. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's essentially what down in hell with you is. It's like, you know what? It's this this water that is cold to everyone else is now warm to me and I want to explore that. Yeah. For what it could, what it can be, and what it is. Yeah. So, also, I definitely wanted to talk to you about "Hold My Hand," yeah. um, because, of course, you worked on, on Wendy. You worked with uh, on that song with Wendy uh, mm -hmm. from the the Revolution. Yeah. And when people hear that joint, well, it's when I hear it, man, it definitely has this. It's like you're paying tribute to that Dirty Mind era. Yeah. And just talk about that collaboration and how that song came about. Mm. Well, the song, because uh, I think I'm using, you know, the old uh, rhythm box on it, the Rhythm uh, King, which is kind of a Sly Stone era, like uh, uh, drum machine. And then... You know, as I'm playing the tune, I'm realizing that it kind of sounds like, you know, Dirty Mind era Prince, uh, When You Were Mine or something. Or, yeah. You know, Private Joy. So I was like, well, probably won't get Prince to play it, but, you know, Wendy's played a bunch of his tunes and she happened to be a friend of one of the guys who was working at the Capitol at the time, an A&R guy. So he was easily able to call her in. And she really dug the tune, and she came and played on it. And, you know, really gave me the sound that I was looking for. Mm. Wow. So, of course, now probably some people may consider this to be the biggest joint uh, in your catalog, but Dust. Mm -hmm. um, take me to, through the process of that. Like just the songwriting process and just laying everything down for for that track, because if I'm not mistaken, I do believe you play everything on there. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So yes, <laughs> like where where I guess where where did everything start with that? How did that come about? Well, you know, like if you could uh, put my career in a synopsis, like it really would sound like. If I'm left to my own devices, there's no one is messing with me at all, no interference. Uh, most of the tunes are going to sound like something like a dust, something like the whole album of Popular, um, mm. where there's a lot of music there, but it's encapsulated in something very simple. Like it's got a you know solid little drum machine groove, little little bass. Yeah, some kind of skanky little guitar parts, and then a, a vocal that uh, you know has a somewhat a meaningful lyric. You know, and there's space in the track, but you know it's rhythmic, it's funky, but it's also pretty. Um, it kind it kind of encapsulates everything. It's, it's it's what I would hope for people to view it as 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 something comprehensive, it covers a lot of ground, with without. Um, having to you utilize eight eight hundred tracks, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Something that uh says more with less. Um so that would basically be my, my personal aesthetic. And so uh when I came up with the demo for Dust, um 
you know, it was, I was I was really happy with it, and I felt like it would be something special. You know, and then that was actually the tune that got me my record deal with Capitol. But little did I know that, you know, they had uh, aims on changing the sound of the demo. So they kept trying to work with it. You know, they I'd work. I'd come in studio during the day at night without me knowing, you know, they sneak in and try and change the drums or change this or that. You know, it's like, look, man, like this ain't going to work because one thing you can't do uh, when you're trying to you know, uh, misrepresent my sound is change the drums. That's where everything starts for me. Yeah. So that relationship between the drums and the bass is everything to me. If it ain't there, I ain't even interested. You know, I'm no longer a part of the song. And so that was really the big, the big issue. I really had to fight for that harder than I had to fight for down here in hell with you. Wow. But ultimately, you know, the, the, the song on the record you know, other than a little bit, you know, a uh, few things here and there, it sounds like the demo. Wow. Yeah, because I, I definitely wanted to talk about her December. Mm-hmm. And that's really like a near and dear song to me. Um, and just that the Latin influence mm-hmm. of that song. What was the what was the inspiration behind that? Well, it it probably stemmed from my my love for uh, uh, Fela Kuti. Wow! Uh, but then I also heard around that time, uh, D'Angelo's Voodoo came out, and so he had Spanish joint, <laughs> Spanish joint on there, and so the, both the tunes were about the same tempo, and so I was like, you know, you know, I was probably influenced and inspired by what he had done. And wanted to try and just compete with it, you know what I mean? So, yeah. um, it, it, and that's when, when I hear the tune, that's kind of what it sounds like something between Spanish Joint and Thaler, you know? <laughs> wow. Or yeah. Stevie. And, and, you know, both Spanish Joint and her December kind of sound like Stevie, you know what I mean? So, it's all, it's all up in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, because I always looked at her December and, and Spanish Joint as like these musical cousins in a way. Yeah. So you you to hear you say that confirmed everything I was thinking because I always felt like her December was like your beautiful response to Spanish joint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that because uh, I was you know the, the the voodoo album was was uh, was moving for for everybody. You know, a very if you can call one album a singular statement in you know the mainstream music industry, I think that was it. Yeah, yeah. So now, you you you're working on the follow up album uh, on the Jungle Floor. Mm-hmm. Um, now, from what I understand, you definitely went through some more creative challenges, uh, clashes uh, with the people you were working with at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, take me through that experience. Well, what what essentially happened is I I had so much frustration uh, with employees of the record label from, on the first album trying to interject their uh, themselves onto my my recording process. That then I guess as a compromise, they agreed to bring in a a producer to work with me on the second album. And so they, they brought in Bill Betrayal. Who's a producer and mixing engineer, 
Yeah, so we started on on the jungle floor. Uh, but again, I came to the process with a bunch of demos that I was really happy with. And essentially, you know, we had to take each of those demos to task and, you know, re-record a lot of stuff. And, you know, some, a couple of tunes wound up being what they were on the demo, like uh, Priest of Police or um, Being a Girl. But then other ones were, you know, completely kind of changed around in ways that, you know, kind of unsatisfactory to me. But as a whole, you know, the grandiosity of that album, the ambition of that album, and certainly the sound of it is largely to do with, with Bill Petrell, and who's, you know, like a joy to record with because, you know, he, lo- he, he was just enthusiastic about recording and he was a fantastic mixing engineer. Sure. So... Of course, you've lately been talking about how uh, the story behind this song, and I remember seeing you uh, back in March, mm-hmm. and you you talked about character. Yeah. Now, for people that don't know, uh, that haven't been to your, your shows, how did that come about? Oh, well, um, so... After Hopeless, you know, I was kind of introduced to Lauren Hill, not personally, but introduced to her as an artist because she was on the Love Jones soundtrack. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, I heard her voice and then, you know, of course, she comes out with, with her own record and it blows up. And then there's like all this kind of little trouble, like, you know, murmuring uh, rumors of trouble that she's having. And can't seem to like get her mind around an- another record. Um, all kind of folks kind of dragging her through the news, you know, this and that. And um, I don't know. I felt like there was something that she wanted to say that you know, or I wanted to to, to have her say, and uh, or I wanted to say to her. I don't know. And so that that song really came to me in a moment, and it didn't really sound. Uh, the, vocally, it sounds like it does on the album, but musically, it sounds more like what I do live. Uh, it's completely kind of different musical figure live, but uh, um, still, you know, people love that song. Um, so, you know, the power of it made it through from the from demo to to the record. So, I actually want you to take me through. I guess the process of a couple of joints because um, there's some joints on that album. I mean, the whole album, of course, is incredible, but there's some joints on there where I guess you, like you said earlier, the the maturity, just everything that you're doing is just so ahead of his time. Like, I mean, what what was going through your head when you wrote something like? God moves at midnight. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was probably uh, the back end of a song like "Down Here in Hell with You," you know, um, where I'm struggling with the whole notion, you know, of trying to balance being a quote-unquote, you know, good guy uh, with being myself, whatever that is, um, and what that means for you know my relationships. Mm. Yeah. 
So going right into um, because I know you 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 worked on popular, but I'll save that for later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I like to call this more so your experimental period. Yeah. Um, and because at this point you you got away from just the politics, the BS um, that you would normally were dealing with on the first two records. Mm-hmm. Um, this period where you was working on, what were you you hoping for? Um, the fun rises, the fun sets, and just so many side projects. Yeah. Just take me through that time. And do you feel like, um, even starting with, what were you hoping for? Like, do you feel like that's when you started to find your creative freedom and happiness again? Well, I mean, I know you're going to come back to popular, but popular was really where uh, Mm. all that started, where I had complete freedom. Um, I had tasted it a little bit because, like I said, I did being a girl, priest of police, largely without interference. Mm. And uh, even going back to the first record, Dust, Down Here in Hell With You, those tunes are largely have very little in- interference um, f- from uh, other people. Uh, but then, you know, I was out of my record deal uh, after Popular w- wasn't released. And so then, man, you know, I'm wide open. I'm, I'm working on uh, what became a piano record. I'm, I'm working on, you know, what became used in case of emergency. Yeah. Going out demos and stuff, you know what I mean? And then then I go into uh, what were you hoping for, which really was just like, that's that's how I write songs. Like, what were you hoping for sounds like my first ideas. You know what I mean? That's, like I said, Seconds of Pleasure, up-tempo, punk kind of tune. I don't recognize any difference between that and what it became. It yeah. Just, you know what I mean? Like somebody would have to come up to me and uh, like that's what happened with Seconds of Pleasure. Like I'm playing it fast and somebody comes up to me and they feel a similar thing, but they feel it slow. And so then I say, oh, okay, let's try it like that. You know what I mean? I could have done that with a, like a tune on um, um whether it was uh, on Jungle Floor, like at, at the end of a slow dance, like that, that could easily be a slow song, you know. Yeah. And the same with with tunes on on what were you hoping for? You know, watching you go crazy, it's driving me. Oh in. man, yeah. <laughs> you know, a slow tune. Yeah. So also, because I know with this pro- with that project, I mean, I just want to take the time to talk about the dynamic that you and Ruth Price have mm-hmm. because what you two have is just something that's just on a whole nother level. And I do want to let you know that people do want to see just a full net tour of just you two rocking it out, yeah. you know, doing what you guys do best. Yeah. And I just want to know, like, how did that connection come about? Which when I started looking for a band to tour for uh, popular, because uh, when when I moved over to Blue Note from Capital and, and Blue Note was going to put out popular, 
they they gave me a whole year before they were going to put it out. So that gave me time to kind of start putting together a band for the tour. So I went and auditioned musicians. And both Ruthie and and uh, Peter Dyer came out of one audition. And that is essentially the band I use on What Were You Hoping For? But they also did uh, some 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 uh the, the popular tour with me, even though the popular wound up being shelved, we still did, you know, a tour, basically two tours between 07, uh, 2007 and 2009. And then I just kept, you know, my relationship with Ruthie just, just kept growing and growing. And she trusted me as a band leader and she appreciated me handing over the drum chair for my sound to her, you know, at least my live sound. And it, I, I think it gave her the, the confidence to continue developing as a drummer and exploring her own ideas. Cause that's, you know, Ruthie, she is uh, a walking <laughs> drum book, you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. She has yeah. all kinds of rhythms, deep, deep polyrhythms that go on in her head and understanding how to put that together. And so all she needs is impetus, like uh, uh, just a song and she can go in on it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So now, of course, to me, this is one of, not I won't say one of your greatest works, but just in general, this is one of the greatest albums ever to me. Um, and that's popular. And you. I know at a time you did say that was kind of like your your proudest work. Yeah. Um, so tell me, I guess around that time, turning the worst times to the the proudest moments or best times of your your career at that time. Well, you know, uh, I was still on Capitol Records when I did Popular, and mm -hmm. basically after we finished the On the Jungle Floor tour and promotional cycle and all that, I walked into the label. And without even me even having to say, you know, you guys can't be involved with this record, man. Just let me do my thing. They handed it over. And they were like, look, we can't give you as much money as you, 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 you know, we gave you to do the first two records. I was like, great, because I don't need that money. I never did need that much money. Right. <laughs> I mean, my ideas are all in my head. I just need a little space and, to do it. And so they were like, cool. You know, and they cut me a check. Man, it wasn't even... Like a fraction of what it was just a fraction, a small fraction of what they they had to spend on the first two records, which was largely spent because they're trying to be, you know, passive aggressive with me about how to present those records. But I go in with with popular, you know, just a fraction of the budget, and laid out everything. And it, you know, I think it was it, the results were clear. You know that uh, to me, it's a seminal record, and you know, it's what you want from from your artists is to express themselves in a way that's, uh, you know, inventive, but but uh, articulate and, and some, somewhat accessible. And I do yeah. think the record was that. And of course, you know, parts of the record were ahead of its time, whatever you can call it, you know, whatever. I mean, but yeah. that's not how you really, you know, you don't market a record uh, around that. You don't worry about that as a, as a part of your artist. You take what is accessible about that artist and their work and you work it from there. You peel the onion from there and, and, and sell that to the, to the audience. That's what's been done with, with any 
with any artist who somebody called you know progressive. You know that's yeah. how that's how you do it. That's how I would do it with some of the artists I'm working with now who you know may be deemed uh, progressive, different, whatever. I would just peel off those layers that are a little less progressive, and and introduce those, use those as the introduction to the to the marketplace, and then the marketplace can at its own pace get to know the deeper aspects of the of the artist. Yeah. So one thing I, I must ask, because I, I remember you describing this album as you writing from all lovers to their lovers. Yeah. So I'm just curious, um, were, were you dealing with something? Were you hurt, you know, at that time? When oh, was- yeah. So I, I, was, I was going through, you know, a, a separation and divorce. Uh, simultaneously while I'm, you know, falling in love and there was, you know, that transition was, man, heavy. It was tumultuous. You know, I have, uh, I had, uh, my child was only about four years old at the time. So it was just, man, I'm being pulled in so many different directions. And, you know, the music had, had always on some level been an escape for me, but it really was then. So, shoot. You know, I could sit down at the piano and, man, there would be so many ideas waiting there for me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, it was pretty easy to just pour all all this stress out onto the rest. Got you. Because one thing that's amazing, I would say, about this album is kind of like there's this duality. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, for example, like with Bits and Pieces, <laughs> there's you kind of like having this acknowledgement where you're, you're finding peace yeah. uh, for your faults, I guess. Yeah. But then there's you're a monster and you being angry, you know, being at rage when you hear someone's name. Like, I guess talk about that. You know, talk about that feeling and just, I guess in a way, man, just creating an album with multiple sides to it. Yeah. Because uh, I think I was talking to somebody about this uh, last night um, and how, you know, in, in, in some ancient lore, they call, they call this person the priest or the trickster or uh, the kind of guardian for the spiritual realm. How, you know, there's a lot of different names for uh, an ambassador source. But that's kind of the role I, I play with music. Like, there, you know, I don't know if people realize this, but you know, the the rules that we live our lives by are are arbitrary. They're made up. Um, you know, and particularly in in our society, like sure that you know there are repercussions for not following the rules, but those repercussions are made up too, just to reinforce made up rules. So. We find ourselves in this weird place where as we are living our lives, sometimes we push up against those rules and realize, oh, these are kind of flexible. You know what I mean? Yeah. Bend these rules. And then some people just break them and, you know, stories fall out of that, out of that, you know, whether, whether you're following rules, bending rules or breaking rules. And so, so I'm not saying that the, I said all that to say the rules, uh, uh, it's not that they're unimportant, but they, in fact, they are important, but only in so far as they allow you to realize uh, 
the eternity of, of ideas. Gotcha. You know, because without those rules, you you know, everything would just be wide open and there wouldn't be much need, you know, uh, for anything. So the rules provide the, those limits uh, and that measurement that gives you something to be restricted by and to work within. And that's when your creativity is suddenly surfaced. Yeah. So I kind of, I, that's how I operate, is kind of show people that within the context of a, of a, a piece of work. You know, so in one, at one moment, you know, you're this kind, gentle person who, you know, you, you may be trying to satisfy somebody's notion of what that is, a good guy per se. And then the next mo- moment you're being this kind of what somebody would call angry, evil, demon, beast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. When really those are the same person. It's just the perspective of the moment that has changed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the that's the truth of it. That's not me speaking. That that is the truth of what is happening in a very physical slash spiritual way, you know. But the the absurdity of it, and I, and I use absurdity as just a descri- uh, a kind description, not not something that is a demeaning ex- uh, description. But it's just a really strange place that we that we live within. But mostly because we invent these rules to try and make make life mean something you know what uh, i mean yeah. so and art art plays with that you know because it, it adds a lot of uh, those rules and the repercussions of not following those rules add a lot of stress to your life yeah you know, even the even trying to follow those rules adds a lot of stress to your life and a lot of things come out of that and uh, one of those being you know um, um art but at the same time i do think it's my job to remind people that, you know, these rules can be changed into new rules. We break them all the time. So, right. You know, I have to be at the forefront, the, the a pioneer for that. And I pay the price for that, of course. But at the same time, it doesn't matter. Because for, for me, that's that's my, there's no greater pursuit for myself than to show people who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, this album is really like the definition of everything that you just explained Mm -hmm. and you finding that freedom to just push the envelope all the way and like i said not have no machine tell you what you should do or how you should do it to appeal to certain ears um you did it with this Mm -hmm. album and and of course, man, it, it connected to dots. It connected the dots to what we would hear later on in your catalog. Um, one thing I am curious because I, I just love talking about the one's equipment use um, on songs and stuff. But I was always curious, man. Like, did you use like a a forest feast for or or a hammock on bits and pieces? Like what was it exactly that you used on that? Oh, uh, it was actually a, a Nord. Uh, I always I love this little cheesy little organ that came out of the the electro uh, Nord. Mm. So I hated that I had this big red keyboard that everybody else had. So I covered it all up in all these like uh, this collage of like little cutouts from magazines. <laughs> wow. I had, 
pictures of cigarettes, naked people, all kinds of craziness <laughs> all across the keyboard. And so anybody who walked in, they could probably still tell it was a Nord, but now it's just like this weird looking Nord. <laughs> so, but I love I loved, I loved the clav in there, which is also the same clav I use on like Blood from a Heart of Stone. Yeah. And I love the organ because it's almost like a uh, carnival like. Uh, so I would use I use that on bits and pieces, and then I had my friend Patrick Warren, fantastic keyboardist, uh, who came in and added other elements around it to kind of highlight some of the chords I would chord shapes I was using with the organ. Wow! So even like with the with the drum machine, what what, what kind of drum machine was that that you that you used on that? Um. The drum machine. Oh, that was uh, it was a, uh, it was probably the the Roland, not the mm. not the Rhythm King, but uh, there was a, a later early '80s, late '70s, early '80s model, uh, or a set of models that Roland came out with, and so it was it was it was one of those, and I and then I just chopped it up, because uh, I did something similar with uh, other tunes when you might hear or think you hear like an older drum machine. It's just something that I chopped up. It was like you're wow. A Monster is a beat like that where I just took those little little elements of it and then chopped it up it's just like a, a a DJ or hip hop producer mic and then re-recorded stuff on top of it. Same thing with uh Dimples on Your Bottom where that the, that drum session was actually from the on the jungle floor session where I'm playing bass and my usual bass player Curtis Whitehead was playing drums. Mm. And Curtis is very sophisticated rhythmically. And so he's playing this crazy, crazy beat. And he he hears the bass line completely differently than what I'm playing. So, But I liked the way he did it. Uh, huh. he, kept, he kept wanting to redo it. And I was like, no, no, no. And I just took like 20 bars, looped it. And then I and later on, I wrote, you know, dimples on the bottom on top of that that drum track. The question I um, that I had was... Um, with this album, you know, being shelved, mm -hmm. and then of course it surfacing online. Um, how did it, I guess what I want to ask is how did it make you feel to know that the album being shelved because in the label's mind it wouldn't have appealed to, I guess, the masses, mm -hmm. but then to have the album leak and that you got these these uh these publications writing about it raving mm -hmm. and it's getting in people's hands and they're loving it so how did that make you feel knowing that you created this masterpiece and it got shelved and then it surfaced online mm -hmm. to only find out that wow it would have worked anyway <laughs> well, I mean, it, I, it was satisfying for me because I only needed, you know, two or three people to hear. Mm. It, you know what I mean? Uh, just to two or three people who are music lovers to hear it and go, man, this is this is good. You know what I mean? And when I say music, when I say music lovers, like like the people who were in at Atlanta last night. Um, you know, a, a lot of those people in the room, man, are not part of the music industry. Yeah, dude, they they work jobs, you know what I mean? Regular jobs, worker bee jobs, and they come there because 
they found something that they really, really like. And this expresses so much of themselves and they're not able to do that for eight to 12 hours of a day. You know what I mean? Yeah. You sleep in six, six, seven or eight other hours. So you really only have this time right here to um, really, really express yourself or have someone express for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, man, you know, when you when you when you when you find that and somebody gives you that a positive feedback and they're like, yo, this is giving me life right here. That's all you need. Like as an artist, if you if that doesn't satisfy you, then you're you're not really being you're not really an artist. You know, yeah. you, you were looking for something else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, an architect can only build one house at a time. man. He has to charge out the ass for it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. In order yeah. to make a living. But hey, that's that's the way I feel, man. Like I, I'm I'm building this one listener at a time. So that's why I stay around, and talk to people after the show, cause that's that that's what this is all about for me. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, how did it make you feel now that this this album is now officially out? Mm-hmm. And just how how did it make you feel to finally just have it? out there and people can get to it more and of course you can get paid (laughs) um how did that make you feel man you know i mean it was um man it was quite moving and stirring not that more people had access to it like i said i had already found gratification from just the few people who had it and who took the time to reach out to me and say how much they enjoyed the record so i knew the record had merit uh, but it was really being able to arrest something from the establishment. Yeah. You know, that's not something that happens very often. And, you know, it, the, the circuitous kind of pattern that it took to get there where it was other artists who were like, yo, this is an amazing record. Why isn't it out? You know what I mean? And why don't y'all yeah. know about it? whatever? And, you know, uh, people making calls on my behalf and, you know, that... It was like getting out of prison, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I know, because actually, I'm going to be honest with you, I never wasn't going to ask this. I, I had no intention to ask this until I spoke to someone last night, and they was like, yo, like, man, seeing Van, you know, is incredible, da 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 And it, it's been some years like it's been, a, it was a time when I didn't hear from him, mm-hmm. and for a second, man, I kind of forgot that you did, quote unquote, retire. <laughs> um, and just what was going through your mind during that period where um, you you retired? Because obviously, man, you didn't stay retired for long. Like you, <laughs> it's like you, you. You retired, then you went to go play baseball, then you came back <laughs> to drop 55. <laughs> well, you know, some more uh, it was funny because when uh, the whole retirement thing came up online, it, I had already been, you know, I had already been off the road for three years at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it, it was just another two, three years, you know, of me sitting around, you know, uh, playing retired, you know, and I, I would have been happy doing that. But 
um, my relationship ended uh, kind of abruptly. And it, it left me in a place where it's like, oh, man. So if I don't have that relationship to fit into, then I'm kind of forced to be totally me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So and it, it, it and almost as if by magic, you mentioned her earlier. Uh, Wendy Melbourne from the Revolution called and was like, "Hey, you want to come sing with us for a show?" Yeah, I you know, that. I, I got tired of saying no to everything. I said, "Yeah," you know. Suddenly, in a position where I, there's nothing left but for me to say, "Yeah," you know what I mean? Yeah. And then uh, another friend of mine, Vernon Reed from Living Color, was like, "Hey, you want to you know, do a show with me?" And I and I was like, "Yeah." Yeah, so things started coming together. Uh, my manager, uh, he was like, "Hey, man, what are you doing now? Let's work." You know, so it it all came together like that, dude. And my tour manager then called and was like, "Hey, what are you doing?" Almost, you know, like they were getting messages from the spirits, the shadows on the screen. <laughs> Where and yeah. it came together really, really rather beautifully. And, uh, you know, we're still feeling our way through it, you know, uh, and how touring and, uh, and should operate. Uh, I'm, I'm also working in artist development with other artists because that's just such a big need. Yeah. Right now. So I do a, I do a lot of that with other artists and, and doing this myself obviously has put me in a position to 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 be able to help them understand what what not what to do and what not to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to say, man, I'm just glad that you're still just doing it, man. Like, really, it's it's just really inspiring. Thank you. You know, to see where you you've come and you're just blowing people's minds, man. And, And and you don't need, you know, five. 10 musicians and of course i'm not knocking anybody out there that does that which is cool yeah uh but you man you just doing it in the most unique special beautiful way where it's raw and and you're just really displaying your happiness yeah and and i appreciate that man because that's the whole point of it it is not to prove that I can do this by myself better than I can with a band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, they're, they're not even comparable in what happens on stage. You know what I mean? Because uh, Ruth, you know, Ruthie, uh, she has a busy schedule, but she's been able to come out with me on a couple of dates. Right. You know? And man, we, you know, we get together and it's the same old fire, you know? Yes. We have fun. It's, it's a completely different experience, though, than what I'm doing up there by myself even ruthie says that you know even she's like no listen you know when i come out you need to do a piece of that thing that you do by yourself and then i'll come out because you know that thing you're doing by yourself is fire too you know what i mean even, yeah man even she says that so it's like you know that's always been the kind of artist i wanted i wanted to be it's like uh somebody who is i'm the same person no matter the circumstances and i want to put that forth so that i can um encourage the audience to you know uh allow me to project you know what i'm feeling on them and they can project that back to me and we can both both be responsible for this evening and you know it's like this 
kind of magical thing that happens up on stage because when I get up there, particularly on this leg of the tour, where you know we we haven't really been promoting the shows, it was just like we just threw some shows together, just you know, just just because they, there was an opportunity to do it. And so, like, not everybody knows about these shows. So some of these shows, there's like half the room is filled. You know what I mean? But when you when you get up there, and you you know you engage with somebody, it could be just one person, and that person starts to tell you about them, their day, whatever it was they were feeling. It suddenly connects them to you and to the rest of the audience. And now people don't feel like they're strangers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Suddenly yeah. people are, people are like, yo. We all came here for kind of the same reason. You know, we want to get off on this music. And yeah. suddenly the room fills up. You know, it's not like with people, but with, with love, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And it feels that way, man. Like, and that is the whole, that's the whole point of it. Like, if, 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 if that isn't happening, when I step up on, on stage, uh, and then I'm not, I'm not really doing my job. Yeah, yeah, man, and and you really are doing your job, you know. <laughs> you really are doing your job and touching people and just changing lives with this experience, man. Because I, I I must admit, um, you know, I know we talked about before where <laughs> um, I didn't want to make a controversial statement because, as you know, I've seen a lot of great people. Mm -hmm. But man, like you, you by far the best experience that I've seen, you know, and, and I believe, you know, with everything in me that it has a lot to do with everything that we're talking about right now. Yeah. And I, I, I really, really appreciate that, man. And, uh, you know, and of course it's not my goal to be the best, you know, uh, experience anybody's ever seen. It's, it's simply my goal to show them, you know, what I see in them. Yeah. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I was talking to my cousin once about my father, and I know you, you got to go. I'm probably the only artist you're going to have to kick off your um, interview. No, no, no. <laughs> not at all, man. But uh, I was talking to my cousin about my father, and this cousin of mine, he's an older cousin, but he's uh, really close to my father. And uh, he was telling me, you know, your your father has always seen so much uh, in people that it makes him it difficult for him to deal with people, to be around people. And, you know, he, he was like, you, you probably feel and struggle with the same thing. But instead of necessarily struggling with it, it's to me, it's a very uh, it's a directive. Like when when I meet somebody, it's. It's almost like I'm talking to, uh, I don't know what you might call it. You might call it their angel, their spirit, their, yeah. their other half. Or it, it's, but it's, it's a, it's a uh, part of them that they don't really recognize that is uh, eternal. It's always there. It's very, very strong. And it's not the kind of interaction that you would have with, a, with another human being. It's the kind of inter interaction you might have with weather. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you can breathe in. You can uh, feel. Uh, so, I'm always about connecting them to that feeling. Uh, 
without being, you know, too too crazy, sound too pseudoscience, metaphysical. But that's exactly what is happening when I'm talking with a person, when I'm making music, when I'm on stage. Uh, it's just all of these elements that I feel around me, and I'm just trying to reconnect people to it. You you could you could use a uh, you could say that I'm trying to reconnect civilization to nature. Word. You know, there's, yeah. a bit of that. there's a bit of that too. And when people feel it, all the pressure goes away. And that's what you feel in the room. You know, when, when, when I'm up on stage, at least that's what I'm trying to deliver. Yeah. As uh, George Clinton, you would say, you know, put all your, your uh, ills and your ailments on this speaker. <laughs> yeah, man. It was, a, it was, you know, kind of a bit of that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, man. So also, I do want to talk about this, the the Trim album, uh, yeah. the reimagined Van Hunt, uh, which is, of course, uh, a beautiful re rework from top to bottom you, of the debut album. And, you know, of course, I just want to know what was the inspiration behind that? Well, you know what? Um, it really was my, my manager, my new manager, who was like, you're coming up on your 15th year of that first record. Maybe we should do a 15th year anniversary record. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure when he brought that up to me, he was probably thinking that I was just going to go, you know, maybe do acoustic songs of that track or uh, of those tracks or maybe try and make those tracks as close to possible to the original. You know what I mean? Something very basic. Mm -hmm. Uh, but of course, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to try and, uh, you know, put those songs out the way I feel them right now. And that was essentially what it what it was. It was a, a necessity that made me invent something. Yeah. 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 That's, what you, that's what you have to have, man. Somebody lay out that, that uh, framework where they almost kind of strangle you uh, in a sense and force you to kind of look for more air you know that's the whole point of the of the creative the creativity you know mm -hmm. put a little pressure on you and push you to a new boundary you know what i mean yeah i, I did want to ask you about i guess the rework for um who will love me in the winter yeah because dude <laughs> you you took that joint to church <laughs> and I was just curious, like, yo, how many vocals do did you lay down for that? <laughs> I don't even uh, remember. Wow. <laughs> but you know, I don't, I don't know if you saw online. There's this uh, group out of England named Pocket. Uh, mm. It's P O Q U E T. Okay. And they were another one of those calls, along with my man Daru Jones and his band um, DMD. They reached out to me and were like, "Yo, we just want to send you some tracks. Would you send? Would you sing on them? Right?" Word. And again, I'm in a position now where I'm without this relationship where I've been trying to fit myself into, and now I'm just I'm just wide open without necessarily any rules, right? So I'm like, "Yo, I gotta I gotta do something." So they they sent me this. And I was like, "Yeah, I'll do it." You know what I mean? After saying no to so many other things. So I jump in, I start just fooling around with background vocals on this stuff and being as wide open creative, they let me just do what I wanted to do. So when the opportunity came up to do this 15th anniversary uh, with Trim, I had all of that practice from those two projects fed into, into the Trim record. 
and I knew exactly how to, you know, also from my training with, with Dion Ferris and Rasan Patterson, uh, I knew exactly how to kind of blend and fool around with those vocals and layer them. And and, and it came out particularly on that track I, it, uh, that I was particularly proud of. And, you know, I had other sounds with the guitar uh, that I was really, really proud of, too, because I had basically designed my own sound for yes. for the for the for the guitar that started you know years ago and led into culminated into that album and then into the tour where I felt like I felt comfortable enough to kind of uh go up on stage by myself and feel like the sound is going to be full enough yeah yeah man wow and i even remember you saying that you prefer this new version of what can i say over the the original version why is that well n not necessarily because i think less of the original version I, I like this new version because it's it's just it's just trickier uh i'm i'm a i'm a better performer um mm. but you know i realize that you know man if, if, you know if, that, if people love prefer that first one i i get that you know because i i at the time i poured you know everything into that too and uh, yeah a lot of beautiful work going in there um with uh, the guy who is actually the singer Beck's father. I'm, I'm flaking on his name right now. I think it's David Williams. But he did the uh, string arrangement on that. Beautiful, man. You know, uh, a lot of people were on that track. So, yeah, I was uh, I was happy with that track. It got a lot of Stevie Wonder-esque qualities to it. But yeah. you know, this, this new one is definitely more me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So because I actually have my own, I guess, debate on which one is better, because I love both versions of mm -hmm. Dust. Oh. And, you know, and what I really thought was unique, and I don't know, I hope this doesn't sound like a silly question, but I really dig elements like this. Yeah. But on the trim version, I just really love how you blended the electric guitar along with the acoustic together mm -hmm. on that joint yeah and i guess it, it's blowing my mind just thinking about it even now just how you even came up with something like that but so i gotta ask how did you come up with something like that <laughs> well you know it's just um uh you know me playing the song so many different ways over the years Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm a I'm a fan of of those country records, uh, even songs that lean toward country. With uh, they use a lot of uh, you know acoustic guitar as a bed, and then th there's always a little blues element that they bring in with the electric guitar. Mm -hmm. um, I love those records, Dolly Part, old old Dolly Parton, you know uh, Conway Twitty, uh, uh, Loretta Lynn. You know those records utilize a, a lot of a lot of that element, and then of course, of course, uh, my favorite records, uh, uh, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and Junior Kimbrough. You know, it, it's just this kind of sparseness that goes on with their music. Uh, you know, man, you know that's that's why I, I I like laying it down. But I was really respectful of Dust because it's my manager's favorite song. So that was the one song on that album. That on the trim album, that I kind of you know tried to keep the the framework in place, whereas you know something like Alice Guy just completely 
you know, freaked it. It's almost rec- unrecognizable. Along with yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So do you, this might, I might put you in a tough spot with this, <laughs> but do you prefer this, ver- what do you, well, okay, what do you prefer more, this version of the album or the the original? Well, it's with the original, I just, when I think about my first record, man, I get upset because there was so much interference with the record, you know, yeah. like I probably, again, I say that those first two records, they would have sounded just like popular, you know what I mean? Uh, wow. Without the interference. And I'm not saying that they don't, they, that they sound bad, but when you introduce all these other elements, you know, where there's huge string sections and live drums and it opens it up to a whole new set of comparisons. And suddenly people, because nobody talks about popular in connection with, you know, uh, let's say necessarily a neo soul thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when you, if you were to add all these like big old live drums and big old huge strings to, to popular, then it opens it up to being connected with those kind of, uh, neo soul, other kinds of records, and that's that's never really been me. The the association is clear when you leave me to my own devices. Gotcha. Yeah. So, will the world ever get uh, on the jungle floor trim? <laughs> <laughs> May, maybe you know. Uh, uh, I I don't I don't know, man. I you know I I like I like those first two records for the really the kind of uh, uh, a mess that they are. You know what I mean? Wow. Like, cause, because there's there's me on there, like, doing my thing, and then there's all this, like, interference that I'm fighting with, and then there's, like, you know, genuine work from other people, you know, who are who are on those records. I mean, Bill Betrayal, he makes the shit out of uh, On the Jungle Floors. It's, it's one of my favorite records to listen to. Like, I he the mix on there is incredible, dude. Like, wow. Uh, and 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 Dave Way, you know, the same with the first record. Like I like the way he 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 mixed the record. Like, but so it's just, but it's just hard for me to claim, you know, completely claim those records as my faves, you know, because it's just so much interference, so much stuff on it that like I wouldn't have done. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, uh, you know, most of Under Jungle Floor would have sounded like um, maybe No Sense of Crime, you know what I mean? Or yeah. Uh, or or being a girl or or uh priest or police uh which you know all those three kind of sound more like 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 pop you know right right so, so we're we're actually gonna get ready to close but i i know i can't let you go without asking you or, or touching on these few things um earlier in the year um you, you kind of got attached to this project, uh, Synthetic uh, Apparatus. Uh, yeah. I mean, because, dude, the stuff that you were doing, creating this music along to these pretty tripped out dope images, I mean, how did that even come about? Oh, man. So that guy, you, you, you were talking about Popular. He, he did the uh, artwork on Popular. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So um, he, you know, he and I stayed in touch, and of course, we both, you know, lamented not having popular out there at the time. So 
uh, we always say we wanted to work together on something else. And he just he just brought that opportunity up to me. He was like, man, if I give you some images, will you put music to it? And uh, he said, then you can give me music and I'll put images to it. So we we went back and forth like that. He'd send me some visuals. I'd put some music down to it. Just really short stuff, like 20 minutes, 40 seconds, 20 seconds, 40 seconds, 60 seconds. And then I'd send him music and, you know, he'd do, put some images to them. So it, went, it worked like that. And it was just a blast, man. We have, we have more on deck. He, he's just been busy. And of course, I've been busy. So Yeah, man. Because some of the stuff that you, you've done even on that is just, like, incredible. Just Man. out of this world. <laughs> hey, bro, I mean, I'm, I'm, I might put those together with some of the, like, the uh, promotional videos I did for this tour and the little uh, minute-long tunes and mashups and see, you know, what if we can come up with uh, a nice little page of, of, of uh, you know, <laughs> minute songs, you know what I mean? Oh, man, definitely, definitely. To <laughs> uh, so go back a little bit, um, because I know he was one of your your heroes mm -hmm. uh, and I remember the f one of the first few times that we first talked uh, a couple years ago I had asked you if you know Prince was always hip to your thing mm -hmm. uh, and of course you did Jay Leno where you perform yeah. uh, character yeah. but little do people know <laughs> You you actually played for Prince, yeah. Uh, before uh, you you appeared mm -hmm. on uh, Jay Leno, yeah. Talk about that. So we actually had a. Um, uh, I want to say that was the re the weekend of the release too uh, of On the Jungle Floor, and we did the release party, and Prince was supposed to show up to the release party. Mm. And he didn't, but he sent word that we could come to his place and play. Now, mm. the next morning, you know, these talk shows, they have you come out. I don't, man, I can't remember the time, but it was early. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we were like, cool. We jumped, put everybody in the truck, in the van, and rode out to his crib. Uh, took everything out, set everything up inside of uh, what was essentially his his living room, and you know, met him uh, briefly, uh, said hello to a lot of people in the party, and man, you know, my crew they wow, you know, I, I got crew from <laughs> you know the, the woods of Georgia, you know what I mean? So man, they all over the place, they causing all kinds of havoc, you know what I mean? <laughs> It, you know, this dude is bona fide Jehovah Witness, like strict, and they, I mean, they they bringing in chicken and they uh, they cursing, <laughs> they cursing all in his prayer room. You know what I mean? So, so we filing out. They finally get us to calm down by asking us to play. So we just start playing. We played about half of our set, and then he came out actually and just started dancing with one of his friends while we were playing. And then we finished up, and he came over, said some really kind words, uh, and then he said. Uh, that he was gonna play, you know, just kind of return the favor. He's like, well, you know, we'll play a little later. We're like, cool. So you know, we waiting. Two hours turns into three, four. <laughs> it's like three in the morning. We 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 got to be up, you know, in like two or three hours. So it's like, man, let's let's just go. So we broke out. And we you know we go to the J Little thing, and, and it's a lot of sitting around and waiting. So 
you know, we were able to pull it off. But man, right before we we they filmed that that Jay Leno, like I was in a dead coma sleep, <laughs> and they literally like had to you know lift lift me up and take me to the stage to uh, the uh, the uh, to to perform. And man, I just the camera start came on. I just literally opened my eyes and started singing. Bro. <laughs> wow, wow, man, wow, that's. I mean, What's funny yeah. is that you know, uh, as we were walking to the Jay Leno stage, uh, his stage manager was like, you know, "Are you okay? You're gonna be able to do it." I was like, "Yeah, you know, they uh, Prince just had us at his house all night, man. I'm tired." And she was like, "Oh, he does that to everybody." <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. Word, man. <laughs> yeah, like so. I guess one thing I also do want to. Uh, another person I do want to talk about because um, you you open up every show, um, at least on this tour, and you pay tribute to one of to me one of the greatest musicians um, ever, um, and that's Mr. Juni Morrison. Yeah, God rest his soul and. I know that he meant a lot to you, and you guys actually had a really deep, you know, personal connection. Yeah. Um, just, I guess, talk about him, man, and how much he meant to you and you guys' relationship. Well, you know, the thing with uh, with Junie, man, is like he was a fan of mine before I even knew it. Wow. Uh, he was just on Facebook, right? And I, I mean, I'd seen this kind of Junie moniker, Junie, Junie Morrison moniker on Facebook, but I, you know, it was like it's somebody just using his name, whatever. I hadn't even thought about it. And then uh, I got a message in the, in in the, in the Facebook thing, and they were like, "Is this the real Van Hunt?" And it was from Junie Morrison. I was like. Uh, it's more likely that I would be the real Van Hunt than you would be the real Junie Morrison. <laughs> and he was like, well, it's the real Junie Morrison. He was like, man, I love what you're doing. Let's, let's, let's talk. And so we got on, we got, I think we got on the horn, talked a little bit, you know, uh, shared some pleasantries. And, you know, he kind of told me some of the things he was into in terms of uh, uh, mixing, producing, uh, with his, uh, web, work with the websites. He was building websites, um, and man, he was making music on an iPad, which you know no one had actually really done yet. Um, yeah, and and his was one of the first like full productions I'd heard on some what somebody do on an iPad with like software made specifically for iPad. iPad. It was like two thousand. Uh, he finished it in like in the two thousand twelve and came out two thousand thirteen. Beautiful track. Wow. And uh, I started showing him some of the stuff I was doing that would later become fun rises. But and, and we were going to work, but we could never really carve out a time where we could really do it. And, uh, you know, Junior is a very private person. And I think, you know, he was going through some ills even at the time physically. So it was really hard to kind of, uh, you know, not a lot of people know, but Junior had had a car accident early in his life. Wow. And had damaged both his legs, so you know he was he was in constant pain. Wow. Yeah. So 
you know, he was going through a lot. But man, I mean, the guy could do anything, man. Like if you listen to those records, even just on Knee Deep, man, he put the whole track together, dude. Like, oh man, his Bootsy playing, uh, uh, not just drums. His Bootsy's playing drums, but uh, he's doing everything else. He plays the guitar solo, bass synths, Rhodes. You know, he orchestrates all these, uh, all the background vocals. You know, that's George doing George's thing on on the rest. Yeah. Man, even even the idea that George brought to him, man, he was a completely different time signature, and he just built this whole track around it. Yeah, it's yeah. an amazing, amazing accomplishment, and he inspired the whole band in that way. You know, uh, just and, and you think you look at that that band itself. You know, at one time on stage, you know, it's Bernie Royal and Junie Morrison. That's the keyboard section, bro. Like, let's insanity bro <laughs> like, yeah you know what i mean that's the last to be honest like that's the last 50 years of like r&b keyboard work i mean you got you can count kashif you can count stevie wonder sure but i mean dude brandon well that was Junie inspired hip-hop keyboard stuff man like yeah uh you got to get, get in like that stick it ends up <laughs> Dude, that's that's Joni c- c- crazy stuff. The Egyptian lover stuff was was inspired by Joni, and then he went into into dance. I mean, I could easily make the argument uh, that he in- inspired uh, disco and new wave and uh, uh, techno. Wow, with his with his work, his engineering work, his production. You know, he worked with a whole host of people, though. Just Incredible engineer, uh, producer, songwriter. People just didn't didn't even know. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, even when I I think back to the the stuff that he did with the Ohio players. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of my favorite, not even one of my favorite Ohio player songs has a lot to do with him, and that's uh, never had a dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. So, and that's again. That's you know that's typical Junie right there. That track. Oh yeah, the singing, playing. And, I mean, Junie was the MD of that band. He was a teenager, bro. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So, in closing, uh, because we're gonna wrap it up here, yeah. man. Because um, we could actually talk for another hour <laughs> yeah um but what 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 is next for you uh because i don't know if i if i should say this um and let me know if i gotta cut this out or not but you you let something uh slip to me that you was working on a very special different kind of project um and like I said, let me know if I got to cut this out. But huh? <laughs> it, you hinted at releasing a gospel EP. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Um, no, that's, no, that's that's coming, man. I'm just, I'm, I'm waiting on a couple of vocal vocalists to finish their parts. And, man, that's that'll be in the can. All the music is done. We're just finishing up vocals now. Okay. And, yeah, just going to do it because I want to h- highlight do my part to highlight that era 
of the African American experience because it's so tied in to yeah. everything that came before it. Africa, uh, folk music, Appalachia, um, country, and, and of course, you know, that is early gospel. Sharecropping, yeah. all that stuff. The, the quartet gospel stuff goes so, so, so deep uh, that it just needs to be hi highlighted almost without the connection necessarily to the, re the religion. Yes. Know? Yes. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I just want to, I just want to highlight that as a music, bro. That it's, it's incredible stuff. Yeah, man. Cause I remember, and it's funny because when you told me that it was about a week or two prior, I had discovered that very small clip of you. Um, it was, you did it. I guess for this televised event of uh, yeah. PBS, yeah. and I heard you, and just what like within ten seconds, I just felt something like you know, of course, us spiritual folk, yeah, church for you, you catch that <laughs> that 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 spirit, yeah, and I was just like, man, Van needs to do this, and when I posted it, and then you told me that you was working on it I was like I know for a fact that's what I need yeah. you know we all need that yeah. and and I know just with, from your background and all this knowledge in you I know that if there's anybody that can go there it's you well dude I, I really appreciate that uh that endorsement. I, I'm I'm really just hoping that you know it will spur me. You know, not only another opportunity for me to do more of it, but for others to feel like they can go ahead and do it. Because there are a lot of brothers out there who you know that's pretty much what they play all the time. Yeah. But you know they have to try and make a living, so you know they they play at some other kinds of music. But left to their own brothers, that's what that's the stuff they would be playing all day, all night. Uh, and I, you know, I, I'd like to 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 see that peak again as a kind of genre, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I I understand that you 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 definitely been working with uh, J Mo. Oh yeah, uh, Robert. You hinted at Robert Glasper, and I know you've definitely been in the lab with uh, Corey Henry as well. Yeah. So. Um, it, are they a part of is specifically I guess talking about Corey is Corey a part of that gospel um, project as well or is that well, connected he, to a whole nother thing? Yeah, he's a part of the larger concept for it for sure. Wow. Okay. You know, I, I haven't wanted wanted to pull distract him from focusing on you know his, finishing his record, uh, which is a very powerful record too. So I, I, I would like to you know. Uh, help him close that off and uh then you know maybe he and i and jmo and whoever else wants to get down can really go you know full-fledged into that sound because to me the the the, the quartet gospel stuff was something that just kind of peaked from uh late 40s up to the late 60s and in, even a little bit into the 70s but you know never really uh, uh, lasted much beyond that. It just had these little little moments here where it would, you know, come in and out. 
but I'd like I'd like to see a movie done on it, you know, or something documentary. Yeah, yeah, on that man, because I think it's as powerful as like, you know, the story, the documentary that uh, actually a few people are working on now about Black Rodeo, you know. Word. Okay. Black, black cowboys. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, man. Well, you know, as always, man, I'm looking forward to whatever is next that that's coming from you um and this is where we'll close Ooh. on that note man and um just thank you i oh, I, 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 could, I could say thank you for coming on but man that that's just scratching the surface man literally like thank you for everything right. everything thank man yes that means the world to me man and uh you know, all the support, all the kind words, bro, it spurs me on.